Today we're going to continue our series through the book of Colossians. We've made it through the first two chapters, which teach us about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Colossians is full of Christology. It's the doctrine of Christ, who Jesus is, what Jesus is like. And we've seen that he is supreme over all things as creator, sustainer, and ruler. And he is sufficient as the one who fully and finally accomplishes our salvation. There's nothing else we need outside of Christ. But if Christ is supreme over all creation, and if he is the all-sufficient Savior, which he is, and if we are made complete in him and united with him by faith and destined to share in his glory when he returns, which we are if we are truly believers, then what sort of life should we live now? This is the question that Paul turns his attention to in Colossians chapter 3 and Colossians chapter 4. This is the practical part of the book. Paul has shown us doctrine in the first two chapters, and now he's shifting gears to show us what deeds should flow from that doctrine. Paul's not content to merely explain the truth. You see, he wants us to understand these deep theological realities so that those truths have a transforming effect on our lives. If you believe certain things to be true about Jesus and the gospel, then it must affect how you live. In light of our great salvation, Paul has already exhorted us, as we saw last time, to keep seeking the things above in the first four verses there of chapter 3 and to set our mind on things above. And if we're going to do this, first and foremost, it's going to mean that we have a different attitude towards our sins. A different attitude towards our sins. You see, you cannot cherish Christ and cherish your sins at the same time. Those of us who have peace with God through Christ will be at war with our sins. In verses 5 through 10 of chapter 3, Paul gives us instructions as to how to deal with our sins. He tells us in verse 5, we are to put them to death. In verse 8, he tells us we must put them all away. And then positively, as we get to verse 12, he tells us that we are to put on the things that honor and reflect Christ. Rather than allowing sinful passions to reign in our hearts, we are to be ruled by the peace of Christ, filled with the word of Christ, controlled by thankfulness to Christ. That's basically a summary of all of chapter 3. And the logic, the basic driving logic of these instructions, we find in verses 9 and 10. Second half of verse 9 He says, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We have, as Christians, put off the old man, the old woman, the old me, the old you. That's been crucified and buried with Christ. And we have put on the new self. This new self that Paul tells us is being renewed after the image of its creator. So this process of putting off and putting on is a necessary process for you and for me. And this is something God wants you and me to do as disciples of Christ, as followers of Jesus. And it's not something that we do in order to have a relationship with God. Notice that this is something that flows out of our existing relationship with Christ. Because we've been made new. Therefore, we must put off these sins and put on 
these virtues. So the next two weeks, we're going to look at the first half of chapter 3, the dealing with sin part. So I'm going to read our text this morning, and then we'll pray together and dive in. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 will be our text this morning. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Lord, as we read your word, I pray that you would help us to look with eyes wide open and heart that is receptive to the truth that you want us to hear. Lord, sober us to the reality of sin in our lives and fill us with resolve to obey and to pursue holiness out of obedience to you, love for you, and a desire to participate in what you are at work doing in our lives, making us more like Jesus. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open your word to us, apply it to our hearts, and empower us to change. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So there's one basic point to this text in verses 5 and 6, and it happens right off the bat in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The main idea this morning is that we must kill indwelling sin. This is war. It's a war. It's a war between us and the sinful parts of us that remain even after we come to faith in Christ. So how can we faithfully fight this war against sin? Well, I think we, first of all, need to understand this battle, and then secondly, engage in the battle. So that's kind of the two sections for this morning. I want to deal, first of all, with understanding the battle, and that will be focusing in on our text this morning. And then I want to share just a couple of pastoral encouragements with you, some practical things you and I can do to actually engage in this battle. So understanding the battle, how must we understand this battle that we are called to. Well, number one, verse five, we see that the nature of this battle is severe. The nature of this battle is severe. Paul, as we see here, is not naive to the fact that Christians still struggle with sin. He knows this. He's writing to believers, people whose faith he has already celebrated in chapter one. But rather than live in denial of their sin, rather than hide sin, rather than make excuses for sin, rather than downplay sin, Paul calls us to face our sins head on and put them to death. The King James Version, it says, mortify your members, those sinful parts of your life. I like that word, mortify, put it to death. It's a word that conveys a sharp, decisive, abrupt action. This is an execution. Take your sins out behind the shed and shoot them. That's what Paul is communicating. It's a decisive action. Because of Christ's work on the cross, our sins have been forgiven, praise God. We no longer are condemned because of our failures. Christ has paid the debt on the cross. So the condemning power of sin has been shattered. But this salvation was not granted to us so that we could remain in those sins. No, God's will for you and for me is that we would be made holy and mature and ultimately become like Christ. As it says in verse 10, that we would be renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator, Jesus Christ. This this means that we cannot and we must not be at peace with our sins. Repentance 
from sin, which is a necessary component of, of saving faith, means that we have turned from our sin and turned to Christ. It means that we are now submitted to Jesus and no longer submitted to our flesh. You see, setting your mind on things above and seeking the things above, like we saw in verses 1 through 4, that's not accomplished by simply daydreaming about heaven. Although that's a good thing to do, to meditate on the glory of heaven. But it requires more than that. Paul here urges us to forcefully take action against anything in our hearts that craves the things of earth. Friends, this is a matter of holy discipline. It's a matter of faith-filled obedience and spirit-empowered effort. Seeking the things above does not mean that we disengage from the things going on in this life. No, it means we intensely engage in a way that is hostile to anything in our hearts that is corrupted by sin. So what are we specifically to put to death? Verse 5, just walking through this. Put to death, therefore, what? Put to death what is earthly in you. What is earthly? This is the opposite of the things above that we are supposed to seek and set our minds on. These are the things that conflict with the values of heaven. 1 John 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Those are strong words. Those are strong words, and we need to hear them and read them and submit to them this morning. Paul says the target for our holy violence is those things that reflect the character and the values and the tendencies of this world. A world that rejects Christ, a world that has thrown off God's law, a world that is in rebellion and defiance against the one who has the right to tell us what is good and what is true. These sins, it is God's will that we put such sins to death. They're not simply to be managed, They're not simply to be controlled. They're not simply to be regulated. They're not just to be hidden or excused, but to be killed, to be rooted out and destroyed. There's nothing passive. There's nothing nonchalant about such a task. It's a priority that's been given to us by our King, King Jesus, and it is the right reaction to our union with Christ. Notice at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Set your mind on things above. And put to death what is earthly in you. This flows from our relationship to Jesus. And is a necessary aspect of seeking the things above. As we become more like Christ. Friends, the nature of this battle is severe. Put to death. It may take effort. It may be painful. It means the loss of something that we formerly loved and enjoyed. But this is the command of Christ, and it is necessary. The nature of this battle is severe. But secondly, I want us to notice this morning the location of this battle. The location of this battle is internal. It's internal. Notice Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In you. The battle against sin is ultimately a battle against self. Put to death what is earthly in you. Notice the things on this list that he shares. Sexual immorality, but then notice impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. We can look down at a second listing that he gives in verse 8. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander. These are all sins that are rooted in the heart. These are all things that that can be unobservable to people from the outside. They're things that are on the inside. These lists have to do primarily with the heart. At the end of chapter 2, if you remember from a few weeks ago, Paul said something remarkable. That merely external efforts at holiness actually have no power against sin. Look in verse 23. He says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, you know, going without things that make you comfortable, it's inflicting pain, making yourself suffer, thinking that that makes you more holy. He says, those things look good on the outside, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Things you do merely on the outside have no value to stop the indulgence of the flesh. Merely external efforts at holiness have no power. There is a futile way of fighting against sin. There's an ineffective way of fighting when you just deal with things on the outside. But there is an effective way of fighting sin. We don't just disengage from battling because, well, what can I do about it? No, Paul says, here's the right way to battle. The difference lies in understanding where the battle must be fought. It's not a battle fought outside of us. It's a battle that rages inside of us. Put to death what is earthly in you. You see, the problem that you and I deal with when it comes to sin is not that somehow sin has gotten into us and contaminated us and needs to be removed. The NASB actually translates, the New American Standard Version, translates this phrase of put to death what is earthly in you a little more literally as the members of your earthly body. He actually refers to the the parts of us we use to commit some of these sins as the things that need put to death. Not because we need to have a physical surgery, but because those things are so associated with sin that that's the target of the war. Paul's referring to these instruments of sin as being the problems themselves. What this shows us is that sin is not some contaminant we pick up along the way like ticks on a dog. No, this is a problem that grows out of our very flesh, out of our nature. It's part of who we are, and it needs to be put to death. Jesus taught us that the source of sin is our heart. In Matthew 7, verse 20, Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Friends, the biggest threat to your holiness is not out there. It's in here. Parents, the biggest threat to your kids' holiness is not out there. It's in here. We need to understand the location of this battle is internal. Sin dwells within us. And this is why externalism and legalism has no power. Because it cannot change your heart. So if we want to have success in putting sin to death... We need to recognize it requires an inner spiritual battle, a battle against the self. In fact, this daily denial of self is the key to living a life of discipleship that Christ calls us to. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
How opposite is this from the mantra of our society and the inclinations of our own hearts which say indulge the self and avoid things like crosses that are painful and cost you your life. Jesus says to deny the self, to embrace the death of self, carrying a cross, and follow him. This is the battleground. It's our hearts. It's our hearts. The war against sin is a war that takes place in here. So the nature of this battle is severe, putting it to death. The location of the battle is internal. These are things that dwell in us. But I want you to notice third, the scope of this battle. The scope of the battle is comprehensive. And now we get to the list, the specific things that Paul condemns. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. If you will read this list and read it carefully and think about the different things that are listed here, you will begin to see that this list is not a random list. And it's not a random list of unrelated things. This is actually showing us a progression of sin. Paul starts with the concrete physical act of sin called sexual immorality and then works backwards to the kind of heart that produces that kind of sin. He starts with sexual immorality as a sin that needs to be put to death. Sexual immorality refers to sinful acts that are committed with the body. This is the Greek word porneia, which is a broad category for any and all sexual activity outside of marriage. Any sexual sin, any act that violates God's revealed will for sexual enjoyment and expression intended for marriage. Sexual immorality although it's celebrated and worshipped in our culture, is a constant feature in the various lists of prohibited sins in the New Testament. And it's a strong emphasis in the Old Testament as well. We'll just give you a sampling here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, This is the will of God. If you're seeking God's will this morning, I can tell you what it is. Right? I have a word from the Lord right from the pages of Scripture. Okay, This is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is God's will for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Ephesians 5, verse 3, but sexual immorality, same term there, and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. There is zero tolerance for this kind of sin in the church, Paul says. Galatians 5.19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18, Paul says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Over and over again, the New Testament urges us to abstain from sexual immorality, to flee from sexual immorality, to not even tolerate it being named among us, and to put it to death. In the Old Testament, we learn of Sodom's destruction, for their sexual immorality. We read the positive story of Joseph, 
who was propositioned by his master's wife. He refused and said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? We come to the Ten Commandments and we hear the word of God thunder from Mount Sinai, you shall not commit adultery. We see the tragedy of David's failure with Bathsheba and the national sins of Israel as they fell time after time into pagan immoral worship practices. From Genesis to Revelation, the theme of sexual immorality is that it is constantly condemned. Now, lest you think that God is anti-sex, anti-pleasure, please note the resounding affirmation of the goodness of God's design for physical intimacy. We could go to Genesis chapter 2. A few weeks ago in our Sunday school class, we looked at the book called Song of Solomon. In Hebrews chapter 13, it tells us the marriage bed is to be held in honor and it is undefiled. God has a lot of yeses and blessings for us when it comes to sexual expression and enjoyment. But it's to be in marriage between a husband and a wife. And anything outside of that is flatly prohibited and condemned from Genesis to Revelation. And what this means is that Christians must be militant in fighting against this sin in our lives. The second item on the list is impurity. Paul moves from the concrete physical act of sexual immorality to something now that is internal, impurity. These are sinful thoughts and the sinful, impure, tainted intentions of the mind. These are things that defile the soul and always precedes the physical act of sexual immorality. There may be some who mistakenly think, like some people I've heard say, well, you can look at the menu as long as you don't order, right? That's the logic of the world. I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm just appreciating what I'm noticing here as this girl jogs down the street. There's some who mistakenly think that. There's some who think that you can watch on a screen, or read things in a book, or fantasize in your mind, as long as you don't actually commit those sins with another person. But friends, this is foolish, and it is wrong. First of all, impurity opens the door to sexual immorality. Second, Scripture flatly condemns impurity as being sinful itself. It, too, must be put to death. It's not enough to simply not actually physically commit sexual immorality with another person. Paul condemns impurity, the the thoughts and intentions of the heart that precede such an act. But then he goes even deeper. The next two items on the list that are very similar, passion and evil desire. Passion and evil desire. These are not just the sinful thoughts and intentions. These are the sinful appetites of the heart, the cravings that that produce such thoughts and intentions. So he's peeled off another layer of the onion and gone even deeper here. And this lust, Jesus says, equates with adultery itself. It too is sinful. The reason that people commit sexual immorality is because they have decided to. That's impurity. It's a cognitive thing going on in the mind. And the reason that they have decided to commit sexual immorality is because they want to. They want to. This is the passion and the evil desire, this craving that Paul says needs to be put to death. The desire itself for sin is sin. James speaks of this, the death-producing power of such evil desires. James chapter 1, verse 14 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived 
gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Paul says this sinful desire is like this deadly monster that's still in embryonic form. And when it gives birth, it's sin. And when it's full grown, it brings death. And Paul says you need to kill it while it's still in its infancy. Put passion and evil desire to death. It's important that we understand not all temptation is sin. We know this because Jesus himself was tempted, wasn't he? He was tempted in the wilderness. Satan came three times and tempted him to sin. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted like us in all ways, yet was without sin. So simply being tempted, that in and of itself is not always sin. But we have to become more nuanced and specific with this. Because there's two different kinds of temptation. There's the kind of temptation that comes to us from the outside. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. Satan came into the garden and tempted them. That's the kind of temptation that Joseph experienced as Potiphar's wife came and tempted him. That's the kind of temptation that Jesus experienced when Satan came and and applied pressure and persuasion seeking to tempt him to sin. There is a kind of sin or a kind of temptation rather that you and I cannot avoid. It simply comes hand in hand with the fact that we live in a sinful world. And those things in and of themselves are not sin because Jesus was without sin and experienced those things. But there is a different kind of temptation that springs up from within us. It doesn't come from the outside inviting us to take a step. It springs up from our very nature itself. It is an unholy, sinful craving that Jesus never experienced. And it comes from our own depravity. Such evil desire, Paul says, is itself sin. It's not just a neutral circumstance. And as such, it must be repudiated and put to death. I think the reason why so many of us fail to achieve victory over our sins, over our lusts, is that our repentance does not go deep enough. God, forgive me for doing this. God, forgive me for making this decision. But we never get to the point of God, forgive me and cleanse me from the very desire for these unholy things that displease you. We need to go deeper with our repentance. Rather than righteous anger towards our sin, we often fancy ourselves victims of unwanted circumstances. Friends, we need to bring a sword, not a sympathy card. When it comes to the battle against passion and evil desire, it must be put to death. And then Paul gets all the way to the very bottom layer when he gets to the final item in this list. Sexual immorality, which is preceded, he says, by impurity, which is preceded, he says, by passion and evil desire, which is rooted ultimately in covetousness, which is idolatry. This is the final item on the list. This is the sin of wanting what we don't have, craving more, craving different And Paul says this is not an innocent desire, but an unholy desire. It's a spiritual condition that underlies not only sexual immorality. Obviously, we can see how it would apply specifically to this. Coveting, pleasure, or conquest, or whatever it may be, or comfort. Whatever it is people are seeking in sexual sin. But covetousness can lead to a host of other sins as well. It can just as easily be an unholy craving for more money more things, an unholy craving for the praise of man or for more power and control. And Paul diagnoses covetousness, this discontentment, this dissatisfaction, this craving for something we don't have, as being idolatry, a spiritual issue. 
Underneath sexual sin, Paul says, is a spiritual issue. Underneath materialism, Paul says, is a spiritual issue. Underneath narcissism and tyranny and being power hungry, Paul says, is a spiritual issue. It is covetousness, wanting something we don't have. And Paul says it is false worship. It is idolatry. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that people who suppress the knowledge of the truth are condemned by God because they have exchanged the glory of God for created things, and they worship things that are created rather than worshiping the creator. And Paul says this is false worship. That's what's going on here in Colossians 3, this covetousness for things or for experiences, he says, is a failure to worship God as we ought. Where there is sexual sin, idolatry is being expressed. We are bowing down in worship to the desires of the flesh. But where there is wholehearted worship of God, then you, you will find sexual purity there. Because we want what Christ wants. Because we're filled with contentedness rather than covetousness. This is a sad and scary progression that we see here in verse 5. But what's encouraging is that the reverse is also true. We can flip this list around on its head and turn it upside down and discover the path to sexual purity. If we deal with the root issues of our sins, like the idolatry of covetousness, then everything else downstream changes. Pure worship and satisfaction in Christ, you know what that will lead to? Changed desires changed passions rather than a passion for your own pleasure you'll have a passion for God's glory rather than an evil desire for sinful things you will have a holy desire to see people blessed and God praised and to see God's kingdom built you'll have a holy desire to do what is right you'll have a hunger and thirst for righteousness like Jesus says in the sermon on the mount and when your passions and desires change You begin to seek after Christ. This leads to changed thoughts and intentions. We begin to set our mind on things above, like Paul says in Colossians 3. We begin to think on what is good and honorable and true and pure, like Philippians chapter 4 tells us. We begin to follow the example of of the person in Psalm 1 whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on God's truth day and night. And these kind of changed thoughts that come from changed desires that are rooted in a changed worship ultimately leads to a change in the way we use our bodies. It comes full circle. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, 13, do not present your members, your body parts, literally, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. Friends, this battle against sin has to be fought at every level, at every level, at the level of our actions, at the level of our thoughts, at the level of our desires, and even at the level of our spiritual orientation. Because if we stop short of the root issue, our false worship, our covetousness, and, and and we try to pick it up downstream somewhere and just deal with it there, that we will have little lasting success in the war against sin. It will be like popping the head off dandelions in your yard. It looks good for a couple days, but the weed just keeps growing back. It's like cleaning up a flooded basement and never dealing with the drainage issues on the outside. You're just going to keep having the same problems over and over again. John Owen, who wrote 
a book years ago called The Mortification of Sin, which I would highly recommend, says this. Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. We have to fight the battle at every level and take it all the way down to the root issue. We need to aggressively and forcefully go deep to the heart and put these sins to death. The nature of this battle is severe. The location of the battle is internal. The scope of this battle is comprehensive. And then finally, the stakes of this battle are high. The stakes of this battle are high. Verse 6. Paul says, in light of this listing of sins he's just given us, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Why, think with me here for a moment, why if these people are Christians, would Paul sort of try to scare them or maybe even threaten them by telling them about the wrath of God? Why would he bring this up? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. Um, If you're reading from a different version this morning, if you have the New American Standard or the King James Version, there's a phrase that's included in your Bible, which I don't have in mine. It says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Your Bible may say, upon the sons of disobedience, or something along those lines. It's likely that the earliest, well, the earliest and best manuscripts don't have that. So it's likely that that phrase sort of got added in later because it makes it fit a very similar passage in Ephesians Um, But don't be confused by that. It doesn't change the meaning either way. So just want to clarify that real quick. But in in general, why would Paul bring up this idea of the wrath of God coming? Well, first of all, I believe Paul says this in order to help us. Because you and I need help. We need help to see the seriousness of our sin. Because you and I are experts. We are professionals at excusing and downplaying and minimizing our sin. That's the way we try to cope with guilt. It's the way we try to cope with our shame. And it's a way we try to keep the door cracked open to keep doing things that if we're honest, we want to do. But Paul wakes us up with a sober dash of reality and says, listen, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. No excusing it, no downplaying it. We will only be motivated to engage in this battle if we really think that it's a matter of life and death. And Paul says it is. It is a matter of eternal life and death. Paul reminds us such sins deserve the wrath of God because we need a holy sense of urgency in putting these sins to death. If God's holy and righteous wrath is poured out on such sins, can we really tolerate them? Dabble in them? Dismiss them as just things that everybody struggles with? No, not if we claim to belong to Christ. Not if we claim to have been made new through faith in him. Not if we claim to believe that Christ is supreme and that he reigns over every fiber of our being. Not only will this reality of coming wrath help by motivating us to a holy war against our sin, but it will also deepen our appreciation for God's grace, won't it? When you realize that sins that we have committed deserve the full wrath of God, It deepens your appreciation for God's love and forgiveness that he's given to us through Christ. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if God were to keep track of your sins and mine, if he kept a bill of expense, the psalmist says, O Lord, who could stand? Could you? I couldn't. The psalmist continues, But with you there is forgiveness 
that you may be feared. When you and I experience the forgiveness of God for our sin, it should not give us a lower view of sin and and, and cause us to be overly familiar with God as if he's just our buddy in the sky. When we understand the cost of our sin and the wrath of God and the reality of how awful our sins actually are, it should cause fear, holy fear. The fear of the Lord that leads to wisdom and a fear that is not incompatible with the comfort of forgiveness and the reception of God's mercy and grace. Again, if I could quote John Owen from The Mortification of Sin, and I'll probably quote him again before we're done. John Owen writes, He that hath slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. The reason some of you aren't that impressed with Jesus this morning And some of you aren't. The reason is because you don't think you're really that bad of a sinner. Those of you who have the grandest and highest view of God in the room this morning, who see him in the most glorious light possible, are those who have looked fully in the mirror and seen exactly how awful your sins are. We are, all of us, guilty of sin. And whether your sin has ever metastasized into the physical act of sexual immorality or not, The issue of covetousness, false worship, and idolatry is in your heart and mine. And it lies at the root of all our sins, whatever form they take. We are all idolaters, and yet God loves us. And yet God chose us. And yet God sent Jesus to die for our sin and absorb the wrath that we had earned. He has cleansed us from such sins and made us fit for heaven so that we don't have to fear the wrath that is to come. Instead, we are anticipating glory with Christ If you look back in verse 4, it says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's what we're looking forward to. We're not dreading the wrath of God. We're looking forward to the glory of Christ. All because of Jesus. And that should go hand in hand with a serious evaluation of our sins. I think Paul gives us this point about the wrath of God so that we will think soberly and rightly about our sins And in part, that will help us to treasure Christ more, to be thankful. I love 1 Corinthians 6.11. After after giving a big list of sins, including some of the ones we've mentioned, Paul says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Praise God that he saves people who are guilty of sexual immorality. Praise God that he cleanses people who have impure hearts. Praise God that he loves and washes and purifies and changes people who have evil desires and passions. Praise God that he takes idolaters and changes us into worshipers of him. That's grace. That's grace. And we don't appreciate that grace unless we understand the reality of the wrath that is to come. But there's a second reason Paul gives us this word about the wrath of God coming, and that is to serve as a warning to those who persist in these sins. You see, if you never put these sins to death, if you tolerate them throughout your life, you continue on in your false worship, your evil desires, your impure thoughts, and your unholy actions, no matter which form they take, Paul says, if you continue in that, you are giving proof that you are not truly born again. 
that you are not united with Christ through faith. You've never been made new, and this wrath is something you are going to experience. Galatians 5.21, Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Even if you've prayed a prayer as a child or as an adult and professed with your mouth, if your heart remains unchanged, if that prayer was not the expression of true repentance, if you were simply going through the motions, it doesn't matter what words you said. If your heart is unchanged, you are not God's child and you will experience wrath. And a life of persistent sin is the proof of the pudding. It shows that that's who you really were all those years. Ephesians 5 verse 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Sound familiar? Similar list here. Paul says, Whoever is like that has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's hell. So if that is true, that those who continue in such sins and never put them to death, who never engage in the battle, will experience the wrath of God, then why is it that some of us would play around with these things? If we allow these sins to persist, they will bring destruction. It's literally kill or be killed. Again, John Owen says this, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Somebody's going to win. And Paul urges us to take up our weapons of war in a spiritual sense and put sin to death because it's because of sins like this that the wrath of God is coming. So friends, the stakes are high. The stakes are high. There ought to be a holy sense of urgency in the fear of God, a holy gratitude for God's grace that produces a hatred of sin and a resolve to put it to death. Persistence in this fight is evidence that we are truly saved. Some of us are going to lose some battles along the way. No one is going to be perfect. But if you're a believer, you will be at war. And you will ultimately be seeking to put these things to death. We need to understand the battle we are called to. It is severe. It is internal. It's a comprehensive battle. And the stakes of this battle are high. So, pastorally, practically, how do we engage in this battle? Now you understand what's going on. Now you understand what God calls us to and what it takes. But how do we actually do it? I mean, what should we do tomorrow in order to put sin to death? Well, first, let me give you a brief list. Here's a couple things that are not helpful, to put it mildly. These are things that are not helpful in putting sin to death. And that is, first of all, excusing and ignoring your sin. Just don't do that. Don't do it in your own mind to rationalize it. Don't do it to others to explain why you're not as guilty as they're saying you are when they come to try to helpfully point out your sin. We need honest self-assessment in the light of Scripture. So don't allow the world's definition of sin to be your definition of sin. Don't allow your own inner defense attorney to be working overtime explaining why you're really not as guilty as your conscience is telling you that you are. No, we need to be honest. If you're not honest about your sin, you will never have success in putting it to death. That's step one. 
You have to be honest. Honest with yourself, honest with God. Stop ignoring or excusing your sin. Look it in the face, call it what it is. That is step one. A second thing that's not helpful is feeding your sin. It's not helpful when you and I engage in things that actually dump gasoline on the fire in our hearts that we're trying to put out. Watching Hollywood depictions of sexual immorality, for example, doesn't help me cultivate contentedness in my marriage. Does it help you? I doubt it. Reading about sexual immorality, fantasizing about it, does not quench your passion and evil desire. Rather, it inflames it and tends to produce impurity, not kill it. So anything that you are doing in your life, whether it be what you watch, what you read, what you occupy your mind with, that inflames these passions and feeds those fantasies is sinful. It feeds your appetite for more, and it's the opposite of what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee sexual immorality. Flee it. Don't feed it. Some of us need to reevaluate our practices, what we consume, what we think about. That's not going to be helpful for you in putting these sins to death. And then a third thing that's not going to help you is tolerating what you think is safe in small amounts. This is the opposite of what Jesus says when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to fall into sin, what should you do? Gouge it out, pluck it out, right? Now, is Jesus literally talking about physical amputation? No, because you could cut off all my limbs and I'd still be a sinner. That doesn't actually change the heart. That goes back to the end of chapter two, saying external things don't have power. What is Jesus communicating by that? He's using this shocking language to show us that you and I need to be willing to do whatever it takes in order to put our sin to death. Frankly, some of us are not willing to do whatever it takes. My cell phone is too convenient I couldn't get rid of it. I enjoy this Netflix account too much because of all the good stuff that's in it, so I can't cancel it. I enjoy being with these friends too much. I wouldn't want to lose these friendships, so instead I'm going to put myself in situations where I know there's going to be sin and I will be tempted. No, we need to be willing to do whatever it takes and not tolerate anything just because we think we can handle it, because we think we're strong enough. That kind of pride goes before a fall. So what is helpful? Well, let me give you some weapons for the war. Just a quick bullet list. A couple weapons for the war in fighting against sin. Number one is the grace of guilt. The grace of guilt. We hate feeling guilty, don't we? Do any of you enjoy feeling guilty? No, we don't like that feeling. But friends, the grace of guilt, it's a gift of God that you and I feel badly about our sin. That's a good thing. That's a sign of health. If you don't feel guilty, something's wrong with you. It means your conscience is hardened and God has said, I'm fine, I'm gonna let you do what you wanna do. And stop convicting you of sin. That's a sign of God's judgment. If you feel guilty, that is often a good thing. It's not something to be escaped at all costs. God gives us a conscience to alert us to our problems. There is a good kind of emotional pain. A good kind of guilt. A good kind of regret. That pushes us to the cross. Now guilt that stays with us after the cross is unhealthy because it's unbelief. It says, I don't believe that Jesus forgave me and I don't believe that I'm really loved and accepted because of Christ because I still feel guilty about these sins. That kind of guilt is unhealthy because it's unbelief. But the guilt that comes when we sin is good when it pushes us to the cross, when it pushes us to Christ. So don't suppress your guilt. Engage it. Embrace it. An act of conscience is a blessing. A second weapon is the grace of confession. 
Just like we hate feeling bad, we also hate admitting to other people that we're sinners. I don't like admitting that I'm a failure. But confession is necessary and healthy. It's, it's something to be practiced, not avoided. We confess our sins to God. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. James chapter 5 even encourages us, get this, this will rock your world, to confess our sins to one another. Really, the Bible says that. James chapter 5, go read it. The grace of confession, when we bring our sin into the light, it shrivels and it starts to die. And we see it for how ugly and empty it actually is. When we keep it secret in the dark, it flourishes, it grows, and we are easily deceived by it. Bring it out into the light. Confession is a crucial weapon in the war against our sin. A third weapon is the grace of the gospel. Believe that God forgives sins through Christ. Believe that you are not the old you who is a slave to sin, but because of Christ, you've been set free and you don't have to keep doing those things. Believe that you are free, that your identity is a child of God, that you're forgiven and loved and cleansed. Find comfort there because Satan wants you to sin and then after you sin, he wants to rub your nose in it and tell you God could never love you. We need to believe not only the bad news that we're sinners, we also need to believe the good news that Christ's blood atones for all our sin. We don't have to carry those burdens any longer. When they are confessed and forsaken, we are free. God casts it as far as east is from the west. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves because it will comfort us, it will humble us, it will encourage us, it will motivate us. Preach the gospel to yourself. That's a key weapon in this war. And then another key weapon is the, what Thomas Chalmers, another Puritan author, called the expulsive power of a new affection. That's old school language for, you know what helps you not want bad things is when you want good things more, right? That's the simple language. What helps you not desire bad things is when you really like what you already have because it's better than that other thing. It's like, why would I want to order from the Taco Bell menu when I have filet mignon and garlic mashed potatoes with Gouda cheese? Forget the Taco Bell. I have something better, and I'm no longer hungry. That's the wisdom that Thomas Chalmers shares with us. He writes this in his essay called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He says this, There are two ways in which we may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of the heart's attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. If you want to fight the battle against sin, it goes all the way to the heart, Instead of covetousness for what you don't have, contentedness in Christ, satisfaction in Christ, love for Christ, delight in Christ, the enjoyment of Christ is the key to not pursuing sin. This is the expulsive power of a new affection. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Pray that verse to yourself as you're battling against sin. God, give me a hunger and thirst for righteousness and satisfy my soul. Make me content in you. God will answer those kinds of prayers. We need to move quickly to wrap up here. We also have the resource of prayer. The resource of prayer. A key weapon in the war against sin is prayer. You can't do it alone. Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we need to pray that about our own hearts. Deliver us from the evil in our hearts. Consider the resource of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You can't do this alone, but you don't have to. God gives you divine power in the war against sin. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul says we engage in this war in the power of the Holy Spirit. Be comforted. God will help you. You're not called to find some sort of fleshly solution to our fleshly problem. No, God gives us a spiritual source of power. And consider finally the help of the body. As you fight against sin, enlist your fellow soldiers to help you in putting sin to death. The Bible tells us to bear one another's burdens, to confess our sin to one another, to pray for each other, to encourage each other, even to rebuke and exhort one another. Friends, the blessing of the church and its discipline is a good thing. So take advantage of the resource that God has given in his word, with his spirit, and with his people. If you are losing the battle, call for backup. Ask your brothers and sisters to come alongside you. We fight this battle together, not just as individuals, but together as a church, as a family. We need to have each other's back. In conclusion, I want to give you some gospel encouragement. This has been heavy. We're dealing with ugly things, hard things, things that for many of us bring up memories we would rather forget, maybe even current struggles that we're hoping no one knows about. But let me give you some gospel encouragement as we go. First of all, victory over the condemning power of sin is ours through Christ. We'll just stay in Colossians here. Look at chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is a room of sexual sinners, but it's also a room of holy saints whose failures have been nailed to the cross. The shame, the guilt has been taken to the grave and we leave it there we believe that Jesus paid it all and we need to no longer carry the pain of our failures. Believe that the condemning power of sin has been shattered. Victory over that is ours through Christ. Secondly, victory over the controlling power of sin is also ours through Christ. Verse 13 and 14 of chapter one. Paul says that he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. No matter how much you may struggle with habits, even addictions, the Bible says you are not a slave. You can break free because God is the one who has set us free through Christ. And then lastly, the final victory over the current presence of sin will be ours one day because of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And you know what will happen on that beautiful day is that you and I will no longer have a heart that is prone to wander. 
you and I will no longer have any remaining sin nature. We will be like Christ. There will be no more temptation in us, no more temptation coming from outside of us. We will be like him, and we will have rest from this battle. It will be over. It will be over, and victory is secure. Again, John Owen, in his book, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, writes, Christians can be confident about their growth and sanctification and eternal security because they are confident in the God who promises it. God promises us final victory over sin. So be confident in that. Be comforted in that. May we fight this war by faith and with the assurance that our victory is ultimately accomplished by and secure in our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, as we look into your word, it's convicting to see an ugly portrait of ourselves in the mirror. Lord, all of us bring with us this morning a heart that's still plagued by idolatry. We worship ourselves and we do what pleases self, and it takes many different forms. I pray, God, that you would accomplish a change deep inside of us, uproot our sinful desires, and replace our hunger and thirst for what is sinful with a hunger and thirst for righteousness, with a desire for Christ, that we would say, like the psalmist, that we seek after you like a deer that's in a dry desert searching for water, and that your steadfast love is better to us than life, and that we are satisfied by you and you alone. Lord, produce this change in us and give us victory over our sins. Fill us with strength by your spirit to put to death the sin that we still wrestle with. And I pray that you would comfort us in our weakness and when we fail as we look to Christ on the cross and remember that the victory is ultimately secured by him. And Lord, for some in the room this morning who may not know you, who are still enslaved to their sins, and perhaps they've been convicted this morning that they are guilty and that they will one day face your holy wrath, I pray that today they would lay aside their sins and that they would turn to Jesus, the only one who can set them free, the only one who can forgive them, the only one who can give them life. I pray that today you would bring about salvation in the hearts of sinners. Lord, help us as a church to link our arms together as we fight against sin, to both give and receive help in this battle, not to keep things in the dark, not to keep things secret, but to bring sin into the light and put it to death, that we might become renewed more and more day by day into the image of Christ. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.